Oscar Wilde, Sylvia Plath, Graham Greene, P.G. Woodhouse, James Herriot, Dylan Thomas, Andrew Motion, Harold Pinter, Ed McBain. What links all these authors and poets beyond their facility with a pen? Find out in this, the October issue of Look Here. I'm Stephen Buckley, and in this very literary issue of Worcester's Talking Magazine, helping me to turn the pages in the studio are Christine Buckley. Hello. Barney Burnham. Hello. And Evelyn Brock. Hello. And what do all those writers have in common, apart from ink-stained fingers and entry in Wikipedia? They were all born in this month, October. Quite a few other famous people were born in October too, including Jimmy Carter and Captain Pugwash. Not only did Jimmy Carter share his birth month with Dylan Thomas, but he also wrote poetry. Quite a lot, as it turns out. Here's one. Considering the Void. Barney. When I behold the charm of evening skies, their lulling endurance, the patterns of stars with names of bears and dogs, a swan, a virgin... Are the planets that the Voyager showed were like and so unlike our own, with all their diverse moons, bright disks, weird rings and cratered faces, comets with their streaming tails bent by pressure from our sun, the skyscape of our Milky Way holding in its shimmering disk an infinity of suns, or, say, a thousand billion, knowing there are holes of darkness, gulping mass and even light, Knowing that this galaxy of ours is one of multitudes in what we call the heavens, it troubles me. It troubles me. John Keats was also born in October and wrote these lines to Autumn. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more Later flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind or on a half-reaped furrow, sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swathe and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, 
or by a cider press, with patient look thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Aye, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too, while barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue. Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly bourne, hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft the red-breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Keats was only just born in October, he almost missed it. His birthday falls on the 31st. That is to say, Halloween. Christine. The English word Halloween comes from All Hallows' Eve, being the evening before All Hallows' Day, or All Saints' Day, on the 1st of November, and All Souls' Day on the 2nd. Since the time of the early church, major feasts in Christianity, such as Christmas, Easter and Pentecost, had vigils that began the night before, as did the Feast of All Hallows. These three days are collectively called All Hallows' Tide and are a time to honour all saints and pray for recently departed souls. By 800, there is evidence that churches in Ireland and Northumbria were holding a feast commemorating all saints on the 1st of November. Some suggest this was due to Celtic influence, while others suggest it was a Germanic idea, although it is claimed that both Germanic and Celtic-speaking peoples commemorated the dead at the beginning of winter. They may have seen it as the most fitting time to do so, as it is a time of dying in nature. By the end of the 12th century, it had become customary to visit cemeteries to pray and place flowers and candles on the graves of loved ones at All Hallows and to ring church bells for souls in purgatory. It was also customary for criers dressed in black to parade the streets, again ringing a bell and calling on all good Christians to remember the poor souls. The All Hallows custom of baking and sharing soul cakes has been suggested as the origin of trick-or-treating. The custom dates back at least as far as the 15th century. Groups of poor people, often children, would go door-to-door collecting soul cakes in exchange for praying for the dead, especially for the souls of the giver's friends and relatives. This was known as souling. While souling, Christians would carry lanterns made of hollowed-out turnips, the forerunners of today's pumpkins. On All Saints and All Souls Day during the 19th century, candles were lit in homes in Ireland, Flanders, Bavaria and in Tyrol, where they were called soul lights that served to guide the souls back to visit their earthly homes. The wearing of costumes at All Hallows has been linked to the belief in vengeful ghosts, as it was believed by many that the souls of the departed wandered the earth until All Saints' Day, and All Hallows' Eve provided one last chance for the dead to gain vengeance on their enemies before moving to the next world. In order to avoid being recognised by any soul that might be seeking such vengeance, 
people would wear masks or costumes. So once again, the forerunners of the many costumes we see on sale today. Many of these old customs ceased to be officially practised in England following the Reformation, as Protestants did not agree with praying for the dead, but there's plenty of evidence that they survived unofficially in more remote parts of the country. But after 1605 and the attempt to blow up Parliament, All Hallows was eclipsed in England by Guy Fawkes' Night, which appropriated some of its customs. However, Christians have always prayed for their departed friends and relatives, and most churches today will hold services at All Hallows to pray for the faithful departed. Nowadays, Halloween is very much a secular celebration, providing an opportunity for parties at a rather bleak time of the year. But as we have seen, secular though they are, the traditions of candles in pumpkins, dressing up as witches and monsters, and trick-or-treating, have their origins in the religious traditions of the past. October, the tenth month in our calendar, was originally the eighth month in the Roman calendar until the additions of January and April around 700 BCE. But it retains its original name, Octo, being Latin for eight. The Anglo-Saxons had a different name for October, calling it Winter Filith. This name refers to October having the first full moon of winter. Born slap-bang in the middle of Winter Filith was the author P.G. Woodhouse, who went on to become, in the words of scholar Richard Voorhees, one of the most prolific and one of the most popular writers of the 20th century. In his novels, Woodhouse always liked to place a strong comic set piece towards the end, and in Right Ho Jeeves, he arranged for Bertie Wooster's friend Gussie Finknottle to give the prizes away at the local grammar school. The shy Gussie is terrified, and Jeeves and Bertie decide the only hope is to fortify him by lacing his orange juice with gin. However, they overdo the gin, while Gussie is already a teetotaler. As Gussie's address to the audience in the Great Hall of Market Snodsbury's Grammar School becomes increasingly out of control, the bearded headmaster is forced to intervene. Getting quickly to his feet, the head made a leap for the table of prizes, snatched up a book and came bearing down on the speaker. He touched Gussie on the arm, and Gussie, turning sharply and seeing a large bloke with a beard apparently about to bean him with a book, sprang back in an attitude of self-defence. Uh, perhaps as time is getting on, Mr Finknottle, we had better... Oh, ah, said Gussie, getting the trend. The prizes, eh? Oh, yes, yes, right ho. Uh, what's this one? Spelling and dictation, P.K. Purvis, announced the bearded bloke. Spelling and dictation... P.K. Purvis, echoed Gussie. Forward, P.K. Purvis. There was a musical squeaking and P.K. Purvis climbed the platform. The spelling and dictation champ was about three foot six in his squeaking shoes with a pink face and sandy hair. Gussie patted his hair. He seemed to have taken an immediate fancy to the lad. You are P.K. Purvis? Sir... Yes, sir. It's a beautiful world, P.K. Purvis. Sir? Yes, sir. Ah, you've noticed, have you? Good. Married by any chance? 
Sir, no, sir. Get married, P.K. Purvis, said Gussie earnestly. It's the only life. Well, here's your book. Looks rather bilged to me from a glance at the title page, but as it is, here you are. P.K. Purvis squeaked off amid sporadic applause. The head began paging G.G. Simmons. A moment later, the latter was up and coming, and conceive my emotion when it was announced that the subject of which he had clicked was scripture knowledge. One of us, I mean to say. G.G. Simmons was an unpleasant, perky-looking stripling, mostly front teeth and spectacles. But I gave him a big hand. We scripture knowledge sharks stick together. Gussie, I was sorry to see, didn't like him. There was in his manner, as he regarded G.G. Simmons, none of the chumminess which had marked it during his interview with P.K. Purvis. He was cold and distant. Well, G.G. Simmons. Sir? Yes, sir? What do you mean, sir? Yes, sir? Dash silly thing to say. So you've won the Scripture Knowledge Prize, have you? Sir? Yes, sir. Yes, said Gussie. You look just the sort of little tick who would. And yet, he said, pausing and eyeing the child keenly, how are we to know that this has all been open and above board? Let me test you, G.G. Simmons. What was, uh, what's his name? The chap who begat thingamy. Can you answer me that, Simmons? Sir? No, sir. Gussie turned to the bearded bloke. Fishy, he said. Very fishy. This boy seems to be entirely lacking in scripture knowledge. The bearded bloke passed a hand across his forehead. I can assure you, Mr. Finknottle, that every care was taken to ensure a correct marking and that Simmons outdistanced his competitors by a wide margin. Well, if you say so, said Gussie doubtfully. All right, G.G. Simmons, take your prize. Sir, thank you, sir. But let me tell you that there's nothing to stick on side about in winning a prize for scripture knowledge. Bertie Worcester won the scripture prize at a kid's school we were at together, and you know what he's like. But of course, Bertie frankly cheated. I heard no more. A moment later, I was out in God's air, fumbling with a fevered foot at the self-starter of the old car. The engine raced, the clutch slid into position. I tooted and drove off to Brinkley Court. It was a much-shaken Bertram who tottered up to his room and lay down on the bed for a bit. I must have dozed off, for the next thing I remember is finding Jeeves at my side. I sat up. My tea, Jeeves? No, sir, it is nearly dinner time. Well, Jeeves, it was certainly one of those afternoons, what? Yes, sir. I cannot recall one more packed with incident, and I left before the finish. Was there much of it after that? No, sir. Mr. Finknottle's remarks with reference to Master G.G. Simmons brought about an early closure. But he had finished his remarks about G.G. Simmons. Only temporarily, sir. Immediately after your departure, he proceeded to deliver a violent verbal attack upon the young gentleman, asserting that it was impossible for him to have won the Scripture Knowledge Prize without systematic cheating. He went so far as to suggest that Master Simmons was well known to the police, whereupon Master Simmons's mother rose from her seat and addressed Mr Finknottle in terms of strong protest. Did Gussie seem taken aback? 
No, sir. He said that he could see it all now and hinted at a guilty liaison between Master Simmons's mother and the headmaster, accusing the latter of having cooked the marks in order to gain favour with the former. You don't mean that? Yes, sir. Gad, Jeeves. And then? And then uh, they sang the national anthem, sir. Surely not. Yes, sir. At a moment like that? Yes, sir. Well, you were there and you know, of course, but I should have thought the last thing Gussie and this woman would have done in the Cirques would have been to start singing duets. You misunderstand me, sir. It was the entire company who sang. The headmaster turned to the organist and said something to him in a low voice, upon which the latter began to play the national anthem and the proceedings terminated. Here at Colin Chance House, we have an extensive library of talking books by many authors, not just P.G. Woodhouse, that you are free to borrow. Phil Lee's here to help you choose. Winter Frost by R.D. Wingfield, read by David Jason. This audiobook is a police drama from the series featuring D.I. Jack Frost and the Denton Police Force under the ever-ambitious and accident-prone leadership of Superintendent Mullet. The series was televised by Yorkshire TV beginning in the 1990s when it starred David Jason, and so he's a good choice to be reading this story, bringing real energy to the dialogue. The theme of the story is centred on sexual abuse and killing of young girls and involves a number of references to prostitution. It's winter in Denton, and Detective Inspector Frost's list of unsolved crimes is on the increase. The station is short of manpower and budget cuts are pruning resources. Now a young girl has gone missing, having failed to return from school one evening nine weeks ago. On top of that, there is the murder of a younger girl from the same school. Frost makes an arrest, but the suspect, strongly protesting his innocence, kills himself in his cell, having been left alone there by the Detective Inspector. Frost is up against it especially as the tapes of his interview with the suspect strongly suggest that Frost has bullied him, a fact picked up by Detective Sergeant Liz Maud, who, having recently arrived from London, is unhappy at many of Jack's approaches to the case and submits a critical report to Mullet. Let's meet Jack. Detective Inspector Jack Frost, a cigarette dangling from his lips, stamped his feet. This was a bloody waste of time. He had hoped to spend the rest of his shift in his office, the radiator going full blast while he fiddled his monthly expenses. His divisional commander, Superintendent Mullet, was away at head office, so no chance of him bursting in when the ink on the month-old petrol receipt was still wet. Then later, feet up in the restroom, he'd planned to watch a video of the big fight. What should have been a night of sheer bliss went right up the swanee when that slimy bastard, Reginald Todd, marched into the station to confess to the killing of Vicky Stewart. You'll enjoy some of Wingfield's characters in this tale, the hapless mullet, the somewhat gormless DC Taffy Morgan, and even, eventually, Liz Maud. The story moves well, is skillfully told and reaches an interesting, if slightly contrived, ending. It's around three hours long and there are three CDs, all in good order. Any reservations? Yes, and a word or two of warning. The atmosphere created is often sinister and at times likely to be challenging. The language employed, particularly by the title character, is blunt and would now be regarded as significantly insensitive. 
I have no desire to deter you from listening to a well-crafted tale, but feel it would be remiss of me not to mention these aspects. If you'd like to borrow this audiobook, let us know at Colin Chance House and we'll send it to you as soon as it becomes available. In the meanwhile, whatever you're listening to, and however you're listening to it, do have an enjoyable time. That was Phil Lee on Talking Books. This is an article entitled Talking Trees, taken from the Woodland Trust magazine Broadleaf, written by Robert McFarlane. Christine. At Emmanuel College in Cambridge is a tree I visit on most weekdays as a means of keeping time. It is an oriental plain and its date of planting is obscure but likely to be around the first decade of the 1800s. No one knows for sure and that is as it should be for such questings after origin are out of keeping with the tree's own manner. Like its possible pasts, the plain divides with intense energy. It is vast, about 75 feet tall, and from its 25 feet wide trunk extend 15 or so radial branches, and off those come hundreds of secondaries, off which come thousands of tertiaries and so on. Each has made a distinctive route through the air. The forms of some remind me of lightning bolts, of falling ticker tape, of crocodile backs, of noodly wibbles, of lines of bird flight and hippodrome curves. From the tree's easternmost leaf to its westernmost is 22 metres, according to my pacing. I have estimated it to occupy around 1,000 cubic metres of space and weigh 600 tonnes, and the length of its branches and twigs to exceed six miles if laid end to end, although such surveys give little sense of its marvellousness. Seen from the outside in summer in full leaf, the tree recedes in huge bosses and curves, creating an illusion that it is a collaboration of many individuals, a tree continent, or perhaps not a tree at all, but a great green cumulus cloud that has bumped softly to Earth from some other planet's weather system. If you step into the tree's domain, you cross into a different realm, a reminder that trees can be said to have an inside. There is something witty about its presence when seen from within. The eight main branches have lowered their elbows to the earth, like Shiva taking up position for an arm-wrestling bout. They have sent their own roots into the soil and seem to rise and fall like a plesiosaur breaching and diving in water. Other branches have, over decades, pleached, melting like wax into one another to create a single continuous surface. The tree's interior resembles a frozen shower of spaghetti, an ecstatic and erratic cathedral roof, gaudily gaudyish in its irregular vaulting. It has an almost preposterous dynamism. The grace of great force expressed over great time that I also associate with glaciers. When you step inside, light moves differently. And in my experience, so does the mind. Andrew Marvell's green thoughts in a green shade. Sometimes I teach my students within the tree. Sometimes I write there. The bark of planes is patchy, scabbing off to leave differently coloured sections, blonde, grey and green. 
the overall effect is of camouflage or of a map of a limitless imaginary continent. For this reason, and because of the slow-motion dance of its branches often prompts in me thoughts of travel and border crossings. I find it impossible not to delve imaginatively into the iceberg depths beneath the soil line, following the great trunk's plunge into its promiscuously dividing root world. In its long life, the plain has inspired poems, photographs, paintings and orations, as well as unnumbered expressions of intimacy. Plays have been performed under it. It is the best imaginable setting for a Midsummer Night's Dream, and my children have grown up climbing it. Truly, it's one of the most extraordinary organisms I have ever met, and I feel lucky to know it. Mike Lane enjoys trees too. In fact, anything to do with growing sense. Finally, we have made it to October. Oh, yes. Clocks are going back. Yes, nights are drawing in. Yeah. Anyway, looking at your fruit trees, I see you've managed to get how many apples? Mm, I don't know, about a dozen, do you think? I mean, that's expected, (laughs) to be honest, because, I mean, the trees are quite new, aren't they? Yes, yes. Freshly planted. So, uh, yeah, just to get get a handful of apples this year is good. I think so. And also, it amazes me how many trees have still got apples on. Really? And the amount of people aren't going out and picking them. Why not? It's just easier to pop off to the supermarket. Pick pick them up from the supermarket. So there's orchards all over the UK just teeming with apples. I'm going to go scrumping. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's it. Go scrumping or even ask ask the farmer. They're probably more than happy for you to go and pick the fruit and then just wrap them up in newspaper and then you can store them for months. As long as they don't touch one another. That's it. They, that's they stay it. fresh. The wildflowers flowered. And they you... did. They were beautiful. I let them seed before I cut them back uh, yep. just so that the seeds dropped and hopefully they'll, uh, come, they'll back. come back again next year. So I know that you are a chocolate lover. Now, have you heard of the Katsura tree? No. Okay, right. Is it made of chocolate? I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> this tree comes from uh, Japan uh, and also China. Okay. Um, it's also, if you ever read any Chinese legends, they always refer to the Katsura tree. So it's magical. It's magical. But this is the time where it smells fantastic. And does it smell of chocolate? Is that what you're saying? It's sweet. It's a very sweet sort of uh, almost like burnt sugar smell. Uh, It's also nicknamed the the candy floss tree. And you can smell it from probably about 20 20 metres away. My goodness. And you get a waft of it as the wind blows. blows. It just smells like a sweet shop, to be honest. And is it pretty? It, it, yes, it is. So a mango, Blue, yellow, yellow orange, uh, yeah. heart, heart-shaped leaves. Lovely. Um, and the smell actually comes from when the leaves break down. Mm-hmm. So as, as the leaves uh, obviously fall to the ground and start rotting, rotting yeah. that's, that then releases the smell. Where do I get one from? It's surprising, to be honest, because you can buy them online, mm-hmm. um, but you don't tend to see them around very often. No. I think this time of the year, if you want to get some fragrance in, into your garden... It's probably a go-to tree. Yeah, but I'm going to need some space for that, aren't I? Yes, but you could also buy the, the, the yeah. dwarf one. And how big do you think the dwarf one would get? dwarf one can go up to about three metres. You could train it as well. I'm going to look into that. Candy floss tree Candy or, floss or the katasura. Katasura. Yeah. Mm. 
there's obviously loads of jobs to be thinking about. Oh, yes. They're starting to pile up a bit. Yeah. Because uh, obviously the tomatoes are finished. Yeah. And I've got a lot of them in pots as well, so I've got to hoik all of that out. Okay. What should I do with the soil that they were growing in? What I tend to do with old pots is just to spread it around the garden. Okay. Um, yeah. And basically almost use it as a mulch. Eventually then any nutrients which are still in, in the still soil, in the soil yeah. will just break down. And, yeah. and, and then next year, fill the pots up again. After a good wash. After a good wash. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's mm. the time when you start thinking, well, let's get some daffodils into pots. I can use the same um, pots then. Use the same pots well. again. Mm. Yeah. And buy new and compost. And buy new compost. Yeah. Buying bulbs this time of the year is always a tricky one. Why do you think that? It's getting the right, the right standard of bulbs. didn't know you there were different be, standards. Yeah, you've got to be slightly careful with the grades of different bulbs. And, Is it best, um, therefore, to go to a good, a good supplier? Yeah. yeah, a good supplier. Yeah. Um, Either online, online or at the yeah. local um, yeah. garden centre. Yeah. Cheap bulbs sometimes is not always a good option. Well, you get what you pay for yeah. in life, unfortunately. Yeah, of course, at yeah. the end of the month, we've got Halloween. Yes. 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 Obviously, you know... Everyone, especially for the kids, they just love creating pumpkins. Yes, I used to do that with yeah. our daughter Yeah, many moons ago. It was a lot of fun. And there's lots of places, especially I think it's quite handy as well. So many of these farms now are, are opening their doors for you to go out and walk through the fields and pick your own pumpkins. Yes, I've read about that. Yeah, which yeah. is which is it is quite handy considering on the October half term is you know, towards, the, up, towards yeah. the end of the month. Um, but yeah, if you have, if you grow any pumpkins at home, the, the, the general thing is to leave it as late as possible before you pick them. Yes. Uh, because the longer you leave it, the better the colour is. I like those little gourds as well. The small the, ones. The small yeah. ones with the, with the sort of got like lumpy skin. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, are they easier to grow than the ordinary they sort? They are, yeah, and they are becoming quite popular. Yeah. And it's the pumpkin seeds as well. There's so much... Oh. I mean, a lot of people just scoop out pumpkins and throw them and away. Throw them away. No, 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 um, no. But as you know, you can dry the seeds out and eat them. E- eat them. Let yes. Them leave, leave them for a couple of weeks before you eat them. I remember when Hazel was little, our daughter. We used to dry the seeds and paint them, and she would make pictures with them, uh, sticking yeah. them on paper and that's, stuff that's like that. That's a nice thing to yeah. do. Yeah. So is there, is there anything I should be thinking about in preparation for Christmas? There are quite a few things, actually, you could be thinking about, such as um, if you want any table decorations or stuff outside. Hyacinths? Hyacinths, yes. Yeah. So how do um, I prepare the hyacinth ready for blooming maybe at Christmas because they smell gorgeous. The bulb is strange. You don't actually submerge the whole bulb, do you? It just sits on the top? It sits on the top of of the compost. compost. And then sometimes you get moss around it. Moss around it, yeah. Yeah. You can also do them in water, can't you? You can put them in a jam jar. Actually, yes, you can, and and they root. And they will root. You can get special little vases yeah that the hyacinth bulb sits on the top and you can pour the water in the top and the water just touches the base of the hyacinth and then the roots go in yeah (laughs) (laughs) anyway lovely to see you mike and you too vanya and uh, i will see you very soon yeah keep busy cheers then Bye. bye oscar wilde is another of our poets who was born in october Evelyn reads Canzonet. I have no store of griffin-guarded gold, 
Now, as before, bare is the shepherd's fold. Rubies nor pearls have I to gem thy throat. Yet woodland girls have loved the shepherd's note. Then pluck a reed, and bid me sing to thee, for I would feed thine ears with melody, who art more fair than fairest fleur-de-lis, more sweet and rare than sweetest ambigree. What dost thou fear? Young Hyacinth is slain, Pan is not here and will not come again. No horned fawn treads down the yellow leaves, no god at dawn steals through the olive trees. Hylas is dead, nor will he e'er divine those little red rose-petalled lips of thine. On the high hill no ivory dryads play, silver and still sinks the sad autumn day. A few months ago, I attended a Lord's Taverners concert at which the actor Robert Powell did some readings, and his final reading was this anonymous poem from Ireland. I can't remember what the title was, but I just think of it as The Pig. "'Twas an evening in November, as I very well remember. I was strolling down the street in drunken pride. But me knees were all aflutter, so I landed in the gutter, and a pig came up and lay down by me side. So I'm lying in the gutter, thinking thoughts I could not utter, when a colleen passing by did softly say, "'You can tell a man who boozes by the company he chooses.' And the pig got up and slowly walked away." Almost the right month. In early October or late September, the Cockney Pearly Kings and Queens of St Pancras in London hold their Harvest Festival. Harvest and fresh produce are at the core of Pearly history. Their story begins with the Cockney costermongers who have traded in London for up to a thousand years. The word comes from costard, a widely available variety of apple in medieval times, and munger, which meant cellar. In fact, these traders sold all sorts of fresh produce in the streets and alleyways, first from barrows and later from market stalls, mostly serving the poor who could only afford to buy in small amounts and wouldn't have been welcomed in the shops. They hawked their wares with distinctive cries, much to the annoyance of well-to-do society, and became known for their style and panache, their use of slang, their love of alehouses, gin palaces and music halls. Cosy places to be when lodgings were so often grim. Female costers cheekily wore titfers, tit-for-tat, hats in Cockney rhyming slang, mimicking the well-to-do, while men would sew mother-of-pearl buttons cut from the lining of a mollusk shell along the seams of their garments shouting sales patter, poems and melodies as they hawk their wares in baskets or pony-drawn carts in the capital's borough markets. But they were outspoken when it came to the politics of poverty that they were desperately trapped in. They survived by crowning a symbolic king and queen, 
who were sworn in to protect the interests of the market vendors, support them financially through hard times and keep an eye out for trouble with the old bill, as they called the police. In London law, to be considered Cockney, you must have been born within earshot of the bells of St Mary Le Beau Church in East London. But 170 years ago, lower noise pollution meant their toll could be heard as far as North London too, and soon every metropolitan borough of London had its pearly royal family. But the first pearly king was Henry Croft. Henry was born on the 24th of May 1861 in a Victorian workhouse orphanage at Number 4 King's Road, now St Pancras Way. After 15 years spent in and out of the workhouse, he was sent to be a road sweeper at the Barnaby Street Department of the St Pancras Vestry. He remained in this employment for the Vestry and subsequently for St Pancras Metropolitan Borough Council until the late 1920s. He got to know several costermongers and became fascinated by their flashboy outfits. They had a row of pearly buttons, each the size of a penny, sewn to their outside trouser seams from the ankle to the knees, with more pearly buttons on the flaps of their waistcoat and coat pockets and the fronts of their caps. At only five feet tall, Henry decided to go one better than the costers and made a suit totally covered in pearl buttons. And he used to wear this to collect pennies and halfpennies to help out the children in the orphanage where he had been raised. He and his suit became a great attraction and he was approached by hospitals, churches and other organisations to collect for the poor, deaf, dumb or blind. Eventually, he had more requests for help than he could cope with single-handed. Henry's friends, the costermongers, already had a tradition of organising a whip-round for any of their members who had fallen on hard times, and Henry now asked them to help him with his charity work. They adopted the same style of costume, and so the pearly monarchy and its tradition of raising money for charity began. When Henry died in 1930, 400 pearly kings and queens attended his funeral in their costumes. Although numbers have dwindled, there are still many pearly kings and queens organisations with one aim of keeping the tradition alive, and that is charity. The London Pearly Kings and Queens Society can sometimes be seen around the streets of London, still maintaining Henry's legacy of support for their charities and the highly anticipated London Pearly Kings and Queens Costermongers Harvest Festival took place on Sunday the 24th of September this year at the Guildhall Yard in London. One of the Pearly's best-known songs is this old-time favourite. Don't worry, your machine hasn't gone strange. But what was it playing? Well, I can tell you, it's an old musical song, made famous by Harry Champion, and a great favourite, apparently, of the Cockney Pearly Kings and Queens, who would have first heard it in the music halls at the turn of the last century. OK, they didn't hear it quite in that form. 
I have cut up the sheet music into a musical jigsaw with all the pieces in the wrong order. But all the bits are there, and some bits you might even recognise. Listen again and see what you can pick up. Here's a clue. It shares its title with a 1989 historical novel by Anthony Burgess. I'll fit some of the pieces together in the right order. See if that helps. The music was written by Charles Collins with words by Fred E. Terry and E. A. Shepherd. Collins wrote the music for many other hits of the day, notably Boiled Beef and Carrots and Don't Dilly Dally on the Way, so I'm sorry if you thought it was either of those, I'm afraid it's not. Listen again with a few more of the pieces put together as they're supposed to be. lots of clues there. The song was written for Harry Champion in 1911, who recorded it in that year. He also went into the studio in 1941 to record a wartime version of which the last verse was an appeal to the public to surrender any old scrap metal, old iron pots, old iron cots, old iron bicycles, anything they'd got, as scrap metal to make munitions. Just in case you still can't place it, Here's the full version, with all the bits in the correct order. Any old iron. John Plush there. In the autumn of their performing career, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy met and entertained a teenage Derek Malcolm, himself later to become a well-established film critic at The Guardian. Christine. As someone who met Orson Welles, Louis Bunuel, John Ford, Satyajit Ray, Howard Hawks, Catherine Hepburn, Charlie Chaplin and many others, I'm often asked who is my favourite movie star. The answer is none of them. My favourites are Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. Mind you, I was in my mid-teens when I met them, which probably led to the kind of adolescent hero worship I might later have abjured. My mother had taken me to the London Coliseum to see them perform. It was 1947 and they were in their 50s, with 20 years as a double act under their belts. It was a matinee of a variety show and they were top of the bill. Elsie and Doris Waters, a pair of well-loved comedians, known as Gert and Daisy, and Ravitch and Landau, famous piano duettist who played Chopin twice as fast as anybody else, were on the undercard. I can't say that Laura and Hardy were at their very best. Maybe the stage was not their natural habitat, although they were still treading the boards together into the 1950s, as seen in the biopic Stan and Ollie, in which we are shown the pair during their gruelling final tour of Britain. 
but I was thrilled to bits just to see them, and I asked my mother at the interval whether I could meet them. She asked the theatre manager, and he came back with a note. It said, Yes, but don't bring your mother. The manager took me to the door of their dressing room and knocked, but left before Hardy answered the door. Come in, young man, he said. We have tea and buns for you. This is Stan, by the way, as you can see by his hat. He seldom takes it off, even in bed. I was tongue-tied. But when the tray of tea and buns came in, I tucked in enthusiastically, whereupon Hardy took a bun from the tray, placed it on his chair and sat on it. It was, of course, squashed flat. I'm pretty sure he did it to amuse me, but you never knew with Hardy, who preferred playing golf to working. Laura looked horrified, especially when Hardy offered the flat bun to me. He was the master of most situations, and the pair's directors invariably deferred to him on set. He was also the British one, born in Alverston, Lancashire, in 1890, and was once employed by the music hall impresario Fred Carnot as an understudy to Chaplin. Hardy was born in 1892 in Harlem, Georgia, and drawn to the movies from his teens. It was clear that they were ageing. The cheers that welcomed them at the theatre, which was three-quarters full, were not so enthusiastic when they left the stage, which may be why they were prepared to entertain a young boy so anxious to see them. If so, they gave no sign of that to me. They were determined to entertain me, and they did so royally, asking me about my school, the subjects I liked, and whether I preferred the theatre or the cinema. When I told them I often went to the newsreel cinema on Victoria Station, which invariably had a Laurel and Hardy short, along with the boring documentaries and songs, they were clearly very pleased. And they told me that many countries had different names for them. In Iran, they were called the Fat and the Skinny. In Poland, Flip and Flap. In Germany, Chubby and Dumb. And best of all, in India... Stout and worrywort. We spent almost an hour together before they called for the manager, who took me back to my mother, who was waiting impatiently in the foyer. I will never forget that flat bun, or the stories they told me about appearing on television and being informed that they were being introduced to six million people. That will take rather a long time, said Laurel. Another of his gags I recall from that day was... I was dreaming I was awake, but I woke up and found myself asleep. But it was never verbal jokes that defined the pair. It was the extraordinary way they dovetailed almost telepathically. No one did double takes better than Hardy, and few did weeping at fate's enormity better than Laurel. They once did a short film in which they used 3,000 cream pies, most of which were upended over Hardy but it wasn't the pies that most intrigued me. In another short, the pair sat together in the front seats of an old car that Hardy couldn't start. And for a full three minutes, they managed to make everyone laugh just by the various expressions on their faces. It was a masterpiece of comedy I shall never forget. And so was the little dance they did together at the end of their Oscar-winning film, The Music Box. Just meeting them was one of the most cherishable moments of my life.
Dylan Thomas celebrated his October birthday with this poem. It was my 30th year to heaven, woke to my hearing from harbour and neighbour wood, and the mussel pooled in the heron priested shore. The morning beckon with water praying and call of seagull and rook and the knock of sailing boats on the net-webbed wall. Myself to set foot that second in the still sleeping town and set forth. My birthday began with the water birds and the birds of the winged trees flying my name above the farms and the white horses. And I rose in rainy autumn and walked abroad in a shower of all my days. High tide and the heron dived when I took the road over the border and the gates of the town closed as the town awoke. A spring full of larks in a rolling cloud and the roadside bushes brimming with whistling blackbirds and the sun of October summery on the hill's shoulder. Here were fond climates and sweet singers suddenly come in the morning where I wandered and listened to the rain-ringing wind blow cold in the wood far away under me. Pale rain over the dwindling harbour and over the sea-wet church, the size of a snail with its horns through mist and the castle brown as owls. But all the gardens of spring and summer were blooming in the tall tales beyond the border and under the lark-full cloud. There could I marvel my birthday away, but the weather turned around. It turned away from the blithe country and down the other air, and the blue altered sky streamed again a wonder of summer with apples, pears and red currants. And I saw in the turning so clearly a child's forgotten mornings when he walked with his mother through the parables of sunlight and the legends of the green chapels and the twice-told fields of infancy that his tears burned my cheeks and his heart moved in mine. These were the woods, the river, and see where a boy in the listening summertime of the dead whispered the truth of his joy to the trees and the stones and the fish in the tide. And the mysteries sang alive, still in the water and singing birds. And there could I marvel my birthday away but the weather turned around and the true joy of the long-dead child sang burning in the sun. It was my thirtieth year to heaven, stood there then in the summer noon, though the town below lay leaved with October blood. 
Oh, may my heart's truth still be sung on this high hill in a year's turning. The brothers George and Whedon Grossmith were both well-known actors in the last quarter of the 19th century. They were also authors, and in 1888 they began to write a humorous series for Punch, a burlesque of the many books of memoirs then being published by self-important people of whom nobody had ever heard. Under the title The Diary of a Nobody, it was supposedly written by the fictional Mr Pooter, a middle-aged clerk in a mercantile office who lived quietly in a suburban house in Holloway with his wife Carrie, his son Lupin and Sarah the servant. The trivia of an uneventful life are detailed in full on an amusing day-to-day -day basis. But the month of October, strangely, has but two entries. The entry for the 30th of the month explaining the absence of the rest. Barney. October the 30th. I should very much like to know who has wilfully torn the last five or six weeks out of my diary. It is perfectly monstrous. Mine is a large scribbling diary with plenty of space for the record of my everyday events, and in keeping up that record I take with much pride a great deal of pains. I asked Carrie if she knew anything about it. She replied it was my own fault for leaving the diary about with a charwoman cleaning and the sweeps in the house. I said that was not an answer to my question. This retort of mine, which I thought extremely smart, would have been more effective had I not jogged my elbow against a vase on a table temporarily placed in the passage, knocked it over and smashed it. Carrie was dreadfully upset at this disaster, for it was one of a pair of vases which cannot be matched, given to us on our wedding day by Mrs Burtset, an old friend of Carrie's cousins, the Pommertons, late of Dalston. I called to Sarah and asked her about the diary. She said she had not been in the sitting room at all. After the sweep had left, Mrs Burrell, the charwoman, had cleaned the room and lighted the fire herself. Finding a burnt piece of paper in the grate, I examined it and found it was a piece of my diary. So it was evident someone had torn my diary to light the fire. I requested Mrs Birrell to be sent to me tomorrow. October the 31st. Mrs Birrell called and in reply to me said she never seen no book, much less take such a liberty as touch it. I said I was determined to find out who did it, whereupon she said she would do her best to help me, but she remembered the sweep lighting the fire with a bit of the echo. I requested the sweep to be sent to me tomorrow. I wish Carrie had not given Lupin a latch key. We never seemed to see anything of him. I sat up till past one for him and then retired tired. November the 1st. My entry yesterday about retired tired, which I did not notice at the time, is rather funny. <laughs> if I were not so worried just now, I might have had a little joke about it. The sweep called, but had the audacity to come up to the hall door and lean his dirty bag of soot on the doorstep. 
He, however, was so polite I could not rebuke him. He said Sarah lighted the fire. Unfortunately, Sarah heard this, for she was dusting the banisters, and she ran down and flew into a temper with the sweep, causing a row on the front doorsteps, which I would not have had happen for anything. I ordered her about her business and told the sweep I was sorry to have troubled him. And so I was, for the doorsteps were covered with soot in consequence of his visit. I would willingly give ten shillings to find out who tore my diary. November the 11th. Returned home to find the house in a most disgraceful uproar. Carrie, who appeared very frightened, was standing outside her bedroom while Sarah was excited and crying. Mrs Birrell, the charwoman who had evidently been drinking, was shouting at the top of her voice that she was no thief, that she was a respectable woman who had to work hard for her living and she would smack anyone's face who put lies into her mouth. Lupin, whose back was towards me, did not hear me come in. He was standing between the two women and, I regret to say, in his endeavour to act as peacemaker, he made use of rather strong language in the presence of his mother. And I was just in time to hear him say, and all this fuss about the loss of a few pages from a rotten diary that wouldn't fetch three halfpence a pound. I said quietly, Pardon me, Lupin, that is a matter of opinion, and as I am master of this house, perhaps you will allow me to take the reins. I ascertained that the cause of the row was that Sarah had accused Mrs Birrell of tearing the pages out of my diary to wrap up some kitchen fat and leavings which she had taken out of the house last week. Mrs Birrell had slapped Sarah's face and said she had taken nothing out of the place as there was never no leavings to take. I ordered Sarah back to her work and requested Mrs Birrell to go home. When I entered the parlour, Lupin was kicking his legs in the air and roaring with laughter. Like many of the writers featured this month, Sylvia Plath, wife of poet Ted Hughes, was also born in the month of October. And she wrote a poem enigmatically entitled Poppies in Autumn. Christine. Even the sun clouds this morning cannot manage such skirts, nor the woman in the ambulance whose red heart blooms through her coat so astoundingly. A gift, a love gift, utterly unasked for, by a sky palely and flamily igniting its carbon monoxides by eyes dulled to a halt under bowlers. Oh, my God, what am I that these late mouths should cry open in a forest of frosts, in a dawn of cornflowers? Does the scarce likelihood of seeing poppies blooming at this time of the year suggest a deeper meaning to that poem? Were he still with us, we could have checked with Canon Henry Ellicombe. He'd have known all about poppies, even rare ones that might have seemed unseasonal. Evelyn. Canon Henry Ellicombe had a right to feel superior. Amid a galaxy of clergymen gardeners, he was 
outstanding. A plantsman whose reputation had, by the time of his death in 1916, at an age approaching 100, far outgrown the confines of his modest garden in a Gloucestershire village. Apart from his years at Oxford and a short period as a curate in Derbyshire, Henry Ellicombe spent his entire life in Bitten, a tiny village between Bristol and Bath. His father, a scholarly expert on bell ringing, and by all accounts a considerable gardener, had been vicar there and had started the garden which his son inherited. Universally known as the Canon, a title he received when he was made an honorary canon of Bristol Cathedral in 1881, Ellicombe had what must be described as a deeply unexciting life. One searches in vain for a dramatic narrative. He married, his wife bore ten children, he made a regular habit of composing a set of Latin verses while resting before dinner, which he would then recite to the family and guests. He went on jaunts to the continent with one or another of his children. He fished and hunted and collected plants. Before taking over from his father in 1850, he even seems to have preferred genealogy to gardening, producing beautiful paintings of coats of arms. In the words of one slightly despairing memoirist, full of interest and beauty as his life was, it was not eventful in the ordinary sense of the term. Nevertheless, the vicarage garden at Bitten sported an amazing concentration of rarities. Over the 50 years before his death, Ellicombe grew nearly 3,000 different species or varieties there. In a five-year period, in the 1870s alone, he received about 4,900 plants and 1,000 packets of seeds from various private individuals and botanical gardens from Kew to New York to Berlin and Gibraltar. Many found a home at Bitten, or at the very least had a good crack at growing in the limey earth and comfortable climate that prevailed there sheltered between the Cotswolds and the Mendips. He was on close terms with successive directors of Kew through much of his life and was proud to have supplied examples of nearly two dozen rare plants for illustration in Kew's magisterial botanical magazine. Yet there was not much of the cool and objective scientist about him. His three prerequisites for a gardener wishing to have and keep a good collection of plants were patience, liberality and a catalogue. He did not hesitate to express his likes and dislikes either, the latter of which were famously numerous. 
those plants he rejected out of hand were sufficient, in the words of one acquaintance, to fill an acre. The canon's favourite plants show a wonderful inconsistency. There was a black pansy brought from Italy by Elicum's father, a convolvulus said to have been raised from seeds found in the pocket of a drowned sailor, and a number of old roses, particularly Rosa hemispherica, the sulphur rose. In several ways, the canon was ahead of his gardening time. Conifers were very fashionable in late Victorian England. He had no great love for them. He believed in letting hardy plants fend for themselves. I dislike all tyings and nailings, all sticks and everything that tends to cramp the free growth of the plants. The modern practice of letting clematis clamber through and over shrubs and trees was old hat to him and he argued for more climbers to be allowed to go where they would by their own unassisted powers, including several types of climbing asparagus. Much as he loved to have visitors, claiming that Bitten could supply some special beauty in every season, indeed every month, he could be sharp with anyone who he sensed was merely faking interest. When one lady simpered, Oh, Canon Elicum, what do you do to have all these beautiful flowers? He answered forthrightly, Well, madam, I plant them. That was taken from Potting Shed Papers by Charles Elliot. Open-air theatre is best suited to the summertime, but even then one can't rely on nature, even human nature, to play its part. For example, Roger Allam, playing Falstaff at Shakespeare's Globe, writes, On the press night of Henry IV, Part One, it poured. I entered in full armour, rain dripping off my helmet down my neck. You have to stand out under the rain as well, rather than under the roof, to show a bit of solidarity with the people in the yard. I was a bit pissed off, so I did a bit of leer. Blow winds and crack your cheeks. It got a big laugh. Dominic Dromgoul, artistic director at The Globe, tells us, Our piazza became a field hospital in 2006, when we produced Titus Andronicus. It was a thunderous and bloodthirsty production. When Lavinia walked slowly out with stumps for hands and spat her tongue from her bloody mouth, there would be a pause, then a single splat, followed by a couple more, and then a spate of them all round, as audience bodies dropped like ninepins in the yard and in the seats. Our first aid room couldn't cope, since between 30 or 40 dropped each show, and several had to be taken to hospital. Bizarrely, tickets were moving quite slowly until word got out that attendance was a sort of gladiatorial blood sport in itself, and then they started to fly out the door. Timothy Shedder, artistic director at Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, writes, During the importance of being earnest, 
There was a large mirror on stage as part of the set. One afternoon the sun was shining down on it and it set fire to the grass. We had our very own bushfire. While Cat Joyce of the Tangled Feet Theatre Company reveals the moment when, as a bouncy castle collapses at the end of the show, inflation, she observed on one occasion that the actor's angst about the deflating castle looked strangely acute. It wasn't until afterwards she found out he'd just been stung on the sole of his bare foot by a bumblebee, so his silent scream of pain was in fact very, very real. While we're on the subject of theatre, don't forget that the Swan Rep Company are doing Romeo and Juliet this month and are giving audio-described performances on the evening of Thursday the 5th at half past seven and also on the 7th, which will be the Saturday, at 2.30 in the afternoon. It'll be worth going to anyway, but if you'd like your own little headset with a live audio description of what's going on on stage, please phone the Swan box office to book. Oh, suns and skies and clouds of June and flowers of June together, ye cannot rival for one hour October's bright blue weather. When loud the bumblebee makes haste, belated, thriftless, vagrant, and goldenrod is dying fast, and lanes with grapes are fragrant. When gentians roll their fringes tight to save them for the morning, and chestnuts fall from satin burrs without a sound of warning. When on the ground red apples lie in piles like jewels shining, and redder still on old stone walls are leaves of woodbine twining. When all the lovely wayside things their white-winged seeds are sowing, and in the fields still green and fair, late aftermaths are growing. When springs run low, and on the brooks, in idle golden freighting, bright leaves sink noiseless in the hush of woods for winter waiting. When comrades seek sweet country haunts by twos and twos together, and count like misers hour by hour October's bright blue weather. Oh, sun and skies and flowers of June, count all your boasts together. Love loveth best of all the year, October's bright blue weather. And in case you're wondering why is Helen Hunt Jackson, who wrote that poem, so insistent about bright blue weather in October when we are more used to leaden skies and gusty showers, well, she was an American citizen living in Newport, Rhode Island from 1866 and therefore perhaps more used to October offering somewhat brighter days than those which we enjoy in the UK today. In India in the 1990s, the weather was so unpredictable that a Delhi TV news programme one year abandoned its nightly forecast because the weatherman kept getting it wrong. One night, he told viewers to keep their woollen underwear on and the next day the temperature was 104 Fahrenheit. The following night, he promised more sunshine 
and there were four inches of snow. Eventually, he burst into tears in the middle of his bulletin, explaining that these were freak weather conditions for April. The channel faded him out. Explaining why they dropped the nightly weather bulletin, a newsreader said, The weather has become too complicated, but we hope to have the forecast back in May, as it is always blazing hot, so he should be able to cope. An Arab news programme reported its own prediction problems in these words. We regret we are unable to give you the weather. We rely on weather reports from the airport, which is closed because of the weather. Whether we are able to give you the weather tomorrow depends on the weather. Set up in the late 1960s to combat the problems posed to shipping by icebergs in the Atlantic, the International Ice Patrol decided that the best approach was to destroy them all. Operated by the United States Coast Guard, they first attempted to shoot the icebergs with machine guns. Apart from giving them an attractive, pitted quality, this had no effect at all. A decade later, the whole enterprise got more serious and they decided to bomb the icebergs. Using 20 Second World War devices, they hoped to break the ice into smaller pieces. In fact, the icebergs proved shock-resistant and nothing happened. At this point, they moved on to thermite bombs made from a powerful mixture of aluminium and iron that explodes, creating temperatures of several hundred degrees centigrade. The plan here was to break up and melt the icebergs in one impressive operation. It was absolutely spectacular, said Captain Fred Dinsmore, commander of the patrol, but didn't do anything to the icebergs. In a final moment of inspiration, they tried to paint the icebergs black on the grounds that they would now absorb the sun's rays instead of reflecting them. This did work and some melted, but the Atlantic was now full of black paint, which was as much of a problem for shipping as the icebergs. In his official report, Captain Dinsmore said, Towards the elimination of icebergs, we have tried everything we could think of short of a nuclear bomb. It was eventually decided to put up with the icebergs and find ways of steering round them. We are indebted for those stories to Stephen Pyle in his book of Heroic Failures, in which may also be found this. The insurance company Accident Claims held a competition in 2010 to find Scotland's most accident-prone person. Whittling a hundred entries down to three hugely impressive finalists, it appeared at first to be a straight battle between Debbie Scott from Aberdeen and the hot favourite Douglas McCorkadale of Perth. Ms Scott was bitten by horses three times and, furthermore, had so many fractures that she became an expert, eventually getting a PhD in bone and musculoskeletal research. Meanwhile, Mr McCorkadale knocked himself unconscious, falling out of his post van burned himself on holiday after covering himself with cooking oil instead of suntan lotion 
and was banned from DIY by his wife when he was crushed by a kitchen unit he had just constructed. He is also known by name to staff at the Accident and Emergency Unit at Perth Royal Infirmary ever since he went in for an eye patch after spraying himself with paint only to fall down a hole on the way out. He hurt his arm and went back in again for further treatment. The eventual winner was the underdog, Lorraine Calamity Crozier, who had been hospitalised on 20 different occasions. In a varied career, she had fallen off a horse four times, crushed her scooter and had severe allergic reaction to a bubble bath. While in the park, receiving the mobile phone call announcing her victory, she was hit on the head by her daughter's swing. Lots and lots of things happened in the Octobers of the past, some of them memorable. For example, do you remember which transport minister introduced the breathalyzer on October the 9th in 1967? Or which member of the Beatles was born on the 9th of October, 1940? Suppose I ask you which explorer on the 11th of October, 1492, landed on an island we now call the Bahamas. On the 21st of October each year, we acknowledge Nelson's last sea battle. What do we call that day? A famous Spanish painter was born in Malaga in 1881. Which painter? And on the 30th of October 1930, the first television transmission of a moving image was made by which Scottish inventor? Got any answers? The breathalyzer was brought in by Barbara Castle. Ringo Starr is the oldest member of the Beatles. He was born in July 1940, but it was John Lennon who was born in the October. Almost 450 years before either Ringo or John first breathed the Liverpool air, Christopher Columbus was enjoying the sea breezes of the Bahamas. The day we remember Nelson's last battle is known, not surprisingly, as Trafalgar Day. Famous Malaganian painter, sculptor and theatre designer Pablo Picasso was born in October 1881, while John Logie Baird was the inventor who sent the first moving pictures of a human face by television, the pictures bearing an uncanny resemblance to Picasso's paintings. And so on to our audio playhouse for this month, which was written by H.H. Munro, otherwise known as Saki, and published in his 1911 collection, The Chronicles of Clovis, satirising the pretensions and hypocrisies of Edwardian society. We present our adaptation of Tobermory. But what 
you describe seems to belong more to the domain of miracle rather than science. I mean, Mr. Appin, human speech is the preserve of humans. You can't teach it to animals. My dear Lady Blemley, you most assuredly can. Of all the guests gathered around Lady Adelaide Blemley's tea table, Mr. Cornelius Appin attracted the greatest attention although he'd been invited on the strength of the vaguest reputation. Someone had said he was clever. But until tea time that day, Lady Blemley had been unable to discover in what direction, if any, his cleverness lay. He was neither a wit nor a croquet champion, nor even a begetter of amateur theatricals. But now he was claiming to have launched on the world a discovery beside which the invention of gunpowder, of the printing press and of steam locomotion were inconsiderable trifles. As much as we love him, to suggest that of all creatures, dear old Tobermory, our own pet, is now an accomplished conversationalist. You really can't expect us to believe that. I should say not. Absolute rats. It is a problem which I have worked at for the last 17 years, but only during the last eight or nine months have I been rewarded with the glimmerings of success. Of course, I have experimented with thousands of animals, but latterly only with cats. Such wonderful creatures which have assimilated themselves so marvellously into our civilization while retaining all their highly developed feral instincts. Here and there among cats one comes across an outstanding superior intellect, just as one does amongst the ruck of human beings. And when I made the acquaintance of your Tobermory just a week ago, I saw at once that I was in contact with a beyond cat of extraordinary intelligence. Tobermory and I have gone far along the road to success. Indeed, we have reached the goal. What did he say? The man was talking nonsense. Never anything like it. You mean Lady Blemley's cat has learned to imitate sounds, like... Like a child might begin to learn how to talk. Uh, my dear Miss Resca, once one has solved the problem of making a beginning with an animal of highly developed intelligence, one has no need for those halting methods. Tobermory can speak our language with perfect correctness. But what you suggest, Cornelius, lies beyond the bounds of credibility. Hadn't we better have the cat in and judge for ourselves? Absolutely. I'll find him. Toby, puss, 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 where are you, boy? What do you think of that, Lady Pennington? Well, I've never heard such nonsense, to be sure. Here, puss. Just like a cat to disappear the moment you want him. You mark my words, we'll not see Tobermory again this Mr. Appin, if you have indeed taught our little Tobermory to say real words, that's a wonderful discovery. I can't wait to hear how... Wilfred... Did you find him? Oh, I... I, I Wilfred, are you all right? Sit down here, Sir Wilfred. I can't. You look quite unwell. Have a brandy, old chap. You look like you need... I can't. It's true. I, I... I found him all right, dozing in the smoking room, and called out to him to... to come and for his tea. He blinked to me in his usual way, and I said, Come, come on, Toby. Don't keep us waiting. And by gad... He drawled out in a most horribly natural voice that he'd come when he dashed well pleased. 
I nearly jumped out of my skin. What are you talking about, man? Here, have another brandy. Lady Blemley, I think your husband has had too much brandy, if you Give ask me. Give the man some air. Can't you see he's had a nasty turn? Now, now, Sir Wilfred, you know a cat cannot... I tell you, it's true. I heard Tobermory speak out loud as if he's spoken English all his life. Are you completely sure? Oh, it's Tobermory. It's Tobermory. Look, Tobermory. Will, will you have some milk, Tobermory? I don't mind if I do. I'm afraid I've spilt a, a good deal of it. Oh, don't apologise. After all, it's not my Axminster. Some sort of trick. It's ventriloquism. That's what it is. Or hypnosis. Tobermory, did you find human language difficult to learn? Oh, really? Tell me, Tobermory, what do you think of human intelligence? Of whose intelligence in particular? Oh, well, mine, for instance. Hmm. You put me in an embarrassing position. When your inclusion in this house party was suggested, Sir Wilfred protested that you were the most brainless woman of his acquaintance, and that there was a wide distinction between hospitality and the care of the feeble-minded. <gasps> Lady Blemley replied that your lack of brain power was the precise quality which had earned you your invitation as you were the only person she could think of who might be idiotic enough to buy her old car. Adelaide, is that the vehicle you mentioned at breakfast this morning? That'll be it. The one she calls the Envy of Sisyphus, because it goes quite nicely uphill if you push it. Um, how about your carryings on with that tortoiseshell puss up at the stables, eh? Absolutely. One does not usually discuss these matters in public. From a slight observation of your way since you've been in this house, I should imagine you'd find it inconvenient if I were to shift the conversation onto your own little affairs. Would you like to go and see if Cook has your dinner ready, Toby? Thanks, but not quite so soon after my tea. I don't want to die of indigestion. Cats have nine lives, you know. Possibly, but only one liver. What was that? Adelaide, do you mean to encourage that cat to go out and gossip about us all with the servants? I've seen that cat skulking about on my balcony. On the lawn. Hiding in the Pelagonian. Right outside my window. Pretending to stalk the pigeons. The panic had become general. A narrow, ornamental balustrade ran in front of most of the bedroom windows at the towers, and it was recalled with dismay that this had formed a favourite promenade for Tobermory at all hours, whence he could observe the pigeons and heaven knew what else besides. If he intended to become reminiscent in his present outspoken strain, the effect would be something more than disconcerting. Agnes Resker had turned a dull shade of gardenia white. Judging by what you said to Mrs Cornet on the croquet lawn yesterday, you were out for food. You described the Blemleys as the dullest people to stay with that you knew. Toby! But said they were clever enough to employ a first-rate cook. 
Otherwise, they'd find it difficult to get anyone to come down a second time. There's not a word of truth in it. I appeal to Mrs. Cornett. Mrs. Cornett repeated your remark afterwards to Major Barfield. She said, that woman is a regular hunger marcher. Toby! She'd go anywhere for four square meals. <laughs> Excuse me, I've got a bone to pick with that one. And with that, Tobermory vanished through the open French window in pursuit of the ginger tomcat that had wandered into the garden from the rectory. Mr. Appin, what have you done? Uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I never thought that... Mr. Uh... Appin, I had no idea you had been meddling with poor Tobermory. Poor Tobermory? What about us? I've never been so mortified in my life. Why? Because you've been found out. What I want to know is, can Tobermory teach other cats the same trick? No, 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 it's too soon yet. Please, be assured that... Then Tobermory may be a valuable cat and a great pet. But I'm sure you'll agree, Adelaide, that he must be done away with without delay. You don't suppose I've enjoyed the last quarter of an hour, do you? My husband and I are very fond of Tobermory. At least we were before this horrible accomplishment was infused into him. But now, of course, the only thing is to have him destroyed as soon as possible. What did she say? We can put some strychnine in the scraps he always gets at dinner time. But, but my great discovery... After all my years of research and experiment, You I... can go and experiment on the shorthorns at the farm, who are under proper control, or the elephants at the zoological gardens. They're said to be highly intelligent, and they have this recommendation, that they don't come creeping about our bedrooms and under our chairs. Sir Wilfrid laced Tobermory's supper with strychnine, as he had promised, but the cat was not to be found that evening. It won't turn up tonight. He's probably in the newspaper office even now, dictating the first instalment of his reminiscences. Lady Watson's book won't be in it. It will be the event of the year. However, to the great relief of Lady Blemley and her ex-friends, Tobermory's memoirs were never published. The gardener's apprentice has located Tobermory. Thank God for that. Now at least we can... He had a tussle with that ginger Tom from the rectory. Oh? He lost the fight. Tobermory's dead, Wilfred. Good Lord. Well, I suppose it's for the best. I shall write a strongly worded letter to the rectory. Poor dear Tobermory. Such a shame. Nor did they see any more of Cornelius Appin, though a few weeks later there was a paragraph in the London News. Adelaide, have you seen this? It says here, an elephant in the Dresden Zoological Garden, which had shown no previous signs of irritability, broke loose yesterday and killed an Englishman who had apparently been teasing it. They don't mean Mr Appin, surely? I fear they do. Though I must say, if he was trying German irregular verbs on the poor beast, he deserved all he got.
Tobamori by Saki, Lady Blemley was played by Val Harrison, Cornelius Appin by Martin Bourne, and Tobamori the Cat by Nigel Buckley. The narrator was Barney Burnham. Other parts, including that of Sir Wilfrid, were played by members of the talking newspaper Repertory Company. Tobamori was adapted and directed by John Plush in our studio here at Colin Chance House. So that's about it for this month. But before we go, here is a selection of signs seen around the world. A notice in a laundrette in Rome reads... Ladies, leave your clothes here and spend the afternoon having a good time. While in a Japanese hotel, a sign cordially informs you... You are invited to take advantage of the chambermaid. Should you enjoy a camping holiday in the Black Forest, be aware that... It is strictly forbidden that people of different sex, for instance men and women, live together in one tent unless they are married with each other for that purpose. And it's always worth heeding the advice on my electric toaster. Do not use underwater. Sylvia and David Day did the copying this month while Carol Hartle and her team covered the administration. The producer was John Plush and the voices you heard, among others, were those of Christine Buckley... Goodbye. Barney Burnham... Goodbye. Evelyn Brock... Goodbye. ...and myself, Stephen Buckley. Goodbye. <laughs>